Say amen. It breaks down like this. Likud is getting the most seats, but his loyalist parties aren't doing well enough to form a government. Yair Lapid is getting more seats than any other opposition party, but Bennett and Saar won't serve under him. Avigdor Lieberman has rejected Bibi, rejected Haredim, the joint list, and the prime ministerial rotation. Merits and Labor declared they'd recommend Lapid to the president to be the next prime minister, but get a load of this. That only gives him 30 seats worth of recommendations. He needs 61, and that absolutely does not give him enough to be prime minister. Anshul, where does that leave us? Well, Dalia, it reminds me a bit of the recent American president election where everyone was talking about the paths either candidate had to find towards a majority of the electoral college. The Israeli electoral system could not be more different than the American one, but I think we can adopt at least the paths and say that Netanyahu still has more paths than any other presumptive prime minister, whether it's to forming a new government with a majority supporting him in the Knesset or simply to remaining prime minister of a caretaker government while his rivals squabble between themselves and fail yet again to form a non-Netanyahu coalition. And he runs down the clock until the deadline for a fifth election. And that's why my anti-forecast forecast says 40% chance Netanyahu forms the next government, 30% chance the opposition forms the government, 30% chance round five. This is Election Overdose. It's March 18th. The end is nigh. The elections are upon us in just a few days. And just when you think nothing is moving, everything could still change. It's happened before. Anshul, what do you recall as the biggest last-minute changes, events, surprises, statements, shifts in electoral dynamics in the final days of the campaign? Well, I have two examples that really stick in my mind. One is from 2006, where in the last days of the campaign, the poll detected a, a move for a party that nobody really had noticed until really really the last week of the election, the pensioners' party, Gil. Um, Which literally means age. We should just point that out. It means also joy. It does. I remember that at the time I wrote in a column, don't vote for the Gil party. It's just a fad. No way they'll cross the electoral threshold. Don't waste your votes. And lo and behold, the day after the election, they won seven seats. So that's a surprise that it still is an embarrassed, personal embarrassment for me. And I think the biggest, most important, really, last-minute shift is the shift that we saw in 2015 when all the polls basically had liquid level pegging with Labour, or what's called the Time Zionist Union, around 23, 24 seats. Or even a little bit below Zionist Union, which was leading in some of the polls. I know because I worked on that campaign. Indeed. <laughs> and lo and behold, on election night, exit polls gave Likud 26 seats. And then I remember driving back about 3 or 4 in the morning from the Likud rally which was a victory rally, and 3 a.m., the radio says, and the real results are Likud 30 seats, and I almost made an accident somewhere around Latrun. I saw that too, but I thought, oh, they've only counted 30% of the votes, so I'm not going to take it seriously. However, I do want to point out that there has been some sort of surprise, usually to the tune of 5 to 7 or even 10 seats in a direction that we couldn't have predicted in many election campaigns. It happened when Shinui got 15 seats in 2003. It happened when Shas got 17 seats in 1999. And we should also remember that Yair Lapid himself got 19 seats in his first run when all the polls gave him 10 or 11 so to understand what might count as a surprise, we need to know what to expect. And to that end, let's review the polling averages of last week of all the public polls. Likud is perched solidly at 29 seats. Really, there's very little variation. Lapid has 19 on average. He's about 10 seats behind Likud, but he towers above both Bennett and Sa'ar, who are at 11 and 10 on average, respectively. 
But together, we should remember that they have more than Lapid. That's important for the coalition bargaining stage if it should come to pass that they are bargaining with each other and not with Netanyahu. Four parties are dancing near the threshold in the weekly averages, blue and white, religious Zionism, Meretz, and Mansour Abbas's Ram. As an average of all of those polls over the last week, it's about 60 seats and even 60 for the pro-Netanyahu bloc. Uh, Avigdor Lieberman is pretty steady at close to his current strength, seven seats. Joint list is way down from 15 seats in the outgoing Knesset to an average of eight seats. Mansour Abbas's Ram is crossing the four-seat minimum in just a few of the last week's polls. And just to keep you coming back for more, I want to just point out we're going to be having a special polling festival in our extra pre-election episode on Monday. It will be a deep dive into data depths. Netanyahu is surely frustrated with the fact that he's stuck at this 28 to 30 seat range. I am too. Because I can't decide if this 28 to 30 seat very limited range is a bad or a good outcome from Likud's perspective. And I find myself making the case either way. Anshul, what do you think? Is this good or is this bad for Likud? Well, it's certainly not what Netanyahu was expecting. Netanyahu, three or four months ago, when the vaccination rollout began, he was talking, I think, quite confidently that this would boost Likud from the 36 it won in the previous election last year to around 40 this time. They spoke about 40 like it was just within reach. Uh, something interesting happening at the Likud rallies. Netanyahu has a mascot there. It's a little-known Knesset member called Mati Yogev, and she's now f- number 42 on the Likud list. And for some reason, Netanyahu calls her out at every rally. He says, Mati Yogev, 42nd place. Let's make sure she's in the next Knesset. I think that Unless one of these crazy polling errors have happened, the number 40 will not be there on election night. But if indeed the polls are right, and this is between 28 to 30, it is a bad result for Likud. There's no way of sugarcoating it. But it doesn't mean that the vaccination haven't helped. It means that they've stopped Likud from going even further down. And let's just imagine a scenario in which Israel, like other countries, had a less successful uh, rollout of vaccines and it hasn't been as fast and as, and as you know as bountiful as vaccines have been here in Israel I, I you know we wouldn't have been surprised to see Netanyahu down to 24 25 or even or perhaps even a bit lower than that well that's why I was wondering if it's actually a good result for Likud because he's managing to retain his position as the top party by 10 seat lead over the next party given even though he's been in, around for so long and he has these three council corruption ongoing uh, trial against him it's a good result for Netanyahu not because of what Likud is getting but because of what he's managed to do to the opposition. And one of the things we don't talk about, you know, we talk about how Netanyahu has built up his own base. We talk about how Netanyahu has kept the right-wing bloc from losing seats by engineering the this awful list of uh, of homophobes and neo-Kahanists, put them all together, and probably they'll cross the threshold. But Netanyahu has also been very actively splitting up the opposition. And it, this is what he's been doing for the last year. He's been fighting this election basically from the moment the previous election ended. By bringing Gantz into coalition, he broke up blue and white, the biggest threat to Likud probably in the last 11 years. By bringing in Labour's leader and its number two into his coalition, he broke up the alliance between Meretz and Labour. And I think that's one of the main reasons why Meretz and Labour aren't running together 
in this election ensuring each other survive because of the distrust that remains from that election when Labour went in. And he's done the same thing to the joint list. Exactly. Well, it wasn't very difficult. The joint list, I think, was already sort of, has already served its purpose and wasn't really capable of staying together for very long. It may have stayed together at least for one more election, but by engaging with Mansour Abbas as he has been for the last few months, he all but ensured that joint list would now split and it has and look at the map in the last election just a year ago there were four opposition parties running there are 10 in this election and that is the best result for Netanyahu and if he does somehow win on Tuesday night it will be mainly thanks to that sure but if he doesn't get 61 and he only gets 58 or 59 as or 60 as the polls are showing he will probably try to do the very same thing and peel off individual members of parties in the opposition camp to go with him. But as we all know, uh, one thing that I noticed about Netanyahu that, you know, when the going gets tough, he gets going abroad. He loves to meet with foreign leaders. He pushed very hard over the last week for a photo op in Abu Dhabi to add to his great album of photographs with fabulous world leaders like erstwhile uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, Vladimir Putin, Narendra Modi. But this Abu Dhabi trip didn't really work out. And not just that, but the former foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates wrote an unusually blunt tweet saying that the country would not be party to domestic election campaigning, calling Netanyahu on what he interpreted as a campaign trick. What do you think about this? Is it a debacle? It's a debacle because Netanyahu has obviously invested so much effort in the last few weeks in trying to get this invitation and visit to, to the Emirates. I think that the Emiratis may have done him a favor because... I mean, I'm sure Netanyahu has some focus groups telling him that this is something which works in his favor. He doesn't th- need focus groups. It is his strongest positive appeal. And across the board, including people who don't vote for him, do give Netanyahu credit for strong foreign relations. But I don't think, and, and, and perhaps you think otherwise, that a visit to the UAE five days before the election would have added any voters. What do you think? No, I don't think it would have added voters, but I think it's the retention that we talked about. The fact that he is vulnerable and uh, he keeps himself in the headlines and he keeps his image as the towering statesman above everybody else so that his core voters will always return to the notion that there's nobody else but Netanyahu. One thing I am hearing from Likud people is that the voters they think it would add them are Arab voters and they think that a photo op in Abu Dhabi or in Dubai probably in this case with Mohammed bin Zayed, would have helped draw, who knows, not not that many probably, but some more Arab-Israeli voters. Because as you know very well from the polling, the agreements with, with the Emirates and with the three other Arab countries are actually a lot more popular among Arab-Israelis than it would seem from the response of their current representatives, the joint list, who voted, voted basically against it in the Knesset. Again, Netanyahu is probably worried. Avigdor Lieberman also thinks Netanyahu is worried. Not only did Lieberman join the trash fest of name-calling this week, and there were many incidents of name-calling this week, Lieberman observed uh, in an interview that Yariv Levin, the Likud chairman of the Knesset, raised doubts that the Central Election Committee would count the electoral votes properly, hinting that Likud is planning of accusing the voting process as fraudulent. Lieberman said that Likud is priming the public for that fraud campaign, and he warned of riots like on Capitol Hill in the U.S. on January 6th because Netanyahu thinks he might lose. Anshul, let's revisit a question that we all asked on January 6th or January 7th. Do you think the election's fraud narrative will take hold? Do you expect any disruptions for that reason? No, I don't, because I think that unlike in the U.S. where this issue of voter registration, voter suppression has been going back decades, if not centuries, 
in Israel, the record of the vote counting, of the results being respected by the parties and by the general public, I think is relatively high, certainly relative to many much uh, better or more respected democracies than Israel. In that field, the Israeli democracy actually does score quite highly, I think. And I don't see Netanyahu or any of his outriders changing the narrative totally. They tried already in the first of this series of this elections when Naftali Bennett and his party at the time failed to cross the threshold by just 1,400 votes. And there were claims that this was because of, uh, of fraud and so on. It didn't catch on. Not only did it not catch on, even Naftali Bennett himself didn't amplify those accusations. He went with his people. They went into the archives of the Electoral Commission and they recounted all the votes themselves. Once, not three times like in the U.S. But they did a perfectly legal recount, which was their right. And if you know any party which had failed to get into Knesset by just 1,400 votes would have done that. But they didn't raise the, the issue of fraud, which Netanyahu's people, not Netanyahu himself, but many of his outrides, including his beloved wastrel son, tried to do. So it didn't catch on then, assuming that Netanyahu will not get the result he wants next week, they'll probably try to do it again. I don't think it will really work. I think it's a fair assessment what you're saying, but it is interesting to point out that the Israel Voice Index, a monthly survey from the Israel Democracy Institute, found in its February poll that about one-third of Israelis actually expressed distrust in election results or expectant proprieties, but it's been a fairly consistent figure. That's not terribly high. And what's most interesting is that there was not a serious differentiation between left, right, and center in terms of the percentage of people who felt that way. There was a difference between Jewish and Arab voters, in which Arab voters showed a much higher level of distrust in the electoral process. Which I think could be a result of the fact that when Arab voters are talking about elections, they're thinking more than their fellow Jewish citizens, they're thinking of local elections, where, as we know, the, the turnout amongst Arabs is much higher than it is uh, in national, national elections. elections. It's, the other, it's the other way around, of course, with Jewish voters. And let's say that local elections in some parts of the country are not as well uh, regulated as national elections are. So I, so, so I, I think that you know, I'd be careful of looking at that figure as something which reflects high distrust. Right. I don't think there's a high distrust of the electoral result. I think overwhelming majority of Israelis believe that the election results as published by the Central Election Committee are pretty trustworthy. We'll see. Getting back to Bibi, because we always get back to Bibi, perhaps the most interesting thing was that he did see a very slight rise from the 28-seat average of two weeks ago to 29, a few surveys this week showing him at 30 seats. And it would appear that this very slight rise was driven by success in the perception that he's managing the COVID situation well. According to a Channel 12 survey published on March 16th by iPanel and Midgam, 57% of the public said that his handling of COVID is pretty good, which is a remarkable reversal from just a couple of weeks ago when numerous polls showed that a strong majority thought he was handling it poorly. So this is a puzzle. Is corona good or bad for Netanyahu? Is it good or bad for the opposition? Which matters more, health management, the economy? Or is the public's feelings about Netanyahu so baked in, whether they're in his favor or just committed to trying to push him out of office, that whatever happens with the pandemic won't really change it. Because it's filtered through people's pre-existing understanding of Netanyahu. Exactly. And to answer this question, we have perhaps the best possible expert and journalist with us, the man who over the past year in the Israeli media has been the nexus between pandemics, politics and electoral analysis. Nadav Eyal, currently a senior columnist on Yudhiyot Akronot and a commentator on Channel 13. 
His book, Revolt, The Worldwide Uprising Against Globalization, was a bestseller when it came out in Hebrew three years ago and is now about to be published in English in the United States and Britain, where we hope it does equally as well. Thanks for being here today. I'm really happy to be with you both. We've seen that Likud's polling over the last 12 months has largely reflected the Israeli public opinion on Netanyahu's handling of coronavirus. However, in the last three months, as the government's vaccination campaign has succeeded and been quite popular, we have to say, we're not seeing a similar boost in the support for Netanyahu. Do you think the public has still not forgiven him for the shambolic handling of the pandemic during 2020? I think that what we might be seeing on election night would be exactly that boost. And I should mention probably that poll numbers from Channel 12 this week, which have shown that the way that the public sees the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis has improved immensely in the last two or three weeks. And that's mainly because Netanyahu has been campaigning on that, but also because of reality when you see that countries across Europe are going into lockdown again. And this is actually an ad he's running through the media right now, showing, you know, empty streets in Germany and in France and sometimes even in the UK, although the UK is doing much better now, and comparing it to Tel Aviv being open. And I think this signal, together with Pesach, with, with people gathering after the elections, actually, for that traditional meal, that could really help him. So I don't think it's completely fixed. But at any rate, we're talking about just a few seats in the Knesset. So we need to explain that this whole thing is about Netanyahu getting together with Bennett 61 out of 120. Now, no poll has given him that for like two years. And right now he's polling, for instance, in the Channel 12 poll, he's polling at about 59. So he's not really far away. This is within the margin of error. And it could definitely give him those two or three seats needed in order to have a stable, very right-wing, ultra-Orthodox government. And that's what he's aiming for. That, that still is a large number of Israelis who can be swayed because they haven't yet got an opinion of how Netanyahu handled uh, coronavirus in the last year, that suddenly they've changed their minds? Yes, I think that we might have those, you know, like two neighborhoods in Rishon Etzion that might change their minds. And, you know, when you talk about democracies and about election campaigns and decisions, it's those people who do not make their mind, those really 5 to 10%, sometimes less than that, who will make a difference. And we see in the polls that many people have not decided who to vote for. Now, usually, this is within their blocks, within the, the center-left or the white ultra-Orthodox blocks. But we are also seeing a gateway between the two blocks, and that gateway is called Gidon Saar. So Gidon Saar's party, uh, Tikva Chadasha, New Hope, is a sort of a Likud for those who despise Netanyahu, but also people from the left wing, some of them even right in our age. But you do see that there is a bridge between these two blocks in these elections. And some would even say that Bennett is a bridge. Now, Bennett Yamina party, he presented himself as someone who won't necessarily go with Netanyahu or necessarily go anti-Netanyahu. And he's the only one in the political sphere who has presented himself as such. But, but in the last few days, he has pivoted towards Netanyahu again. So that leaves us with Tsar, and that's about 10 seats in the Knesset. 
Now, if Saar loses some of his right-wingers who don't like Netanyahu but might be convinced that he did a good job with the vaccination attempt, yes, Netanyahu will have his 61. He will be able to form a government. Okay, but I want to ask you again about the corona opposite impact in terms of Netanyahu's management. Because couldn't we say by the same token that there are small business owners, people of lower middle class who are suffering desperately from unemployment, who might have been Likud voters in the past and whose economic situation has not been fixed because Israel is just starting to emerge from Corona? What if they leave Likud? Does that offset any new voters? First of all, it's already calculated in the results of the polls that we've been seeing in the last two months. And we are seeing that they are improving for the Likud. In a very small range. Very, very slightly, but the trend is clear. If Ram, which is an Arab party uh, from the southern Islamist faction, if they go into the Knesset, we see dilution of other parties and they will become weaker to an extent. Even so, we're still seeing a strengthening of the Likud. So that means that there is a real trend of the Likud strengthening. Now, most of its strength comes from Netanyahu basically drinking, as we say, I'm just translating from Hebrew, those satellite parties in the right wing around him, because basically he's saying, give me that power so I'll be able to form a government. So this is not a, a complete shift. At the end, this government has put a lot of financial assistance to small businesses at the beginning, it wasn't the case, but at a certain point, they started just channeling huge amounts of money, even in international comparison. And they did so relatively regularly in the last few months. And you hear less and less of those stories about those small businesses. Now, there are other problems. For instance, some of the you know small owners of businesses don't always pay their taxes, so they won't see the benefits, as others will see the benefits. But the economy is really picking up in the last couple of months, uh, and that influences everyone. What would you say was the biggest mistake that Netanyahu is being blamed for in terms of corona management? For him, I think that the biggest mistake was the way that he treated the ultra-Orthodox community and the way that he sold out. And what I mean by that is that it's obvious that he should have handled it on a more differential uh, point of view, he needed to close down certain cities and certain towns and not close the entire country. It was very obvious that it was political, his approach to that. And we see this also with this, also with the Ben-Gurion airport. So politicization, it was really an essential component of the COVID-19 handling in Israel in the sense that even in the first press conferences, he would go immediately from describing to people how they should uh, wear a mask or how to blow their nose or how to blow their noses to the need to have a national unity government. So he didn't even have this kind of uh, structural barrier between making political statements and making announcements relating to people's health. And he did so all along keeping his coalitions with the ultra-Orthodox party on the one hand, but also driving his political messages towards the previous election campaign and now towards this election campaign. Which is exactly how he got into hot water by using the same slogan that the Ministry of Health has been using for the vaccination campaign, Back to Life. Yeah, well, for him, it's not, it's not hot water at all. For him, it's really the best thing that could have happened. He did that on purpose. He used the same slogan as the health ministry. <laughs> Because he knew that it will be, you know, taken out 
uh, because of legal reasons. And then he will get free publicity, free media, which he got. Nadav, until very recently, you were also the foreign affairs editor of Channel 13. And basically, you began covering and, and delving into the COVID-19 issue even before it reached Israel's shores. You were probably one of the first Israeli journalists to really see that this was a major uh, issue that would affect all our lives. So this question is sort of more of a broader international question. When we criticize the Netanyahu government over the way it's handled COVID-19, we have to recognize that most governments around the world, most world leaders haven't done a great job. Yep. There's no you know, there's no shortage of examples here. Only a small handful have done well. So when we're comparing Netanyahu's performance to that of others, which leaders should we be comparing him to? This is really a question that delves into the ideal Israel that you would want to see here. And I would say, why not compare Israel to countries like Norway or Denmark or, or even Austria to an extent? So some would say Austria did worse because if you look at mortality, it did do worse. But Austria is much older than Israel. So it has a very young population structure. And, and, and in a young country as Israel, with its history of you know, knowing how to deal with emergencies, having the legal structures to do that, having a relatively disciplined population that knows you know, how to go into bomb shelters from this day to the next, having its fantastic healthcare system. The healthcare system in Israel is just really, you know, I lived in the UK, you lived in the UK. Oh, the NHS is wonderful. Hello, yes, I'm coming said, from the U.S., so I have never stopped appreciating Israel, the Israeli so, health system. Uh, yeah, you cannot say enough about when you need to compare it between, you know, any sort of um, public system that there is out there. Maybe the French are better. Maybe. Maybe the German are better. I don't know. But this is really fantastic, as it was. And also Netanyahu himself, to his credit, he saw the threat in the beginning. He understood thoroughly that this is going to be a huge issue, maybe because he has this tendency, you know, we talk about him being an alarmist. He's there, very risk averse. There are studies about that, that people that are looking always to danger will relatively deal with danger when it happens better than others. That goes to medical issues, but also to others. So Netanyahu was really very well placed to make the right decisions. And you know what the tragedy is for him? And he will never talk about that. Unlike, you know, Jacinda Ardern, unlike the Prime Minister of Australia, he understood thoroughly, but he didn't do what he needed to do. He could have made Israel into New Zealand very easily. Israel is an island nation in every sense. So sometimes the Palestinians, the Palestinian uh, mortality is lower than the Israeli mortality. Also a young population structure. And, and very say. young population, more than Israel. Israel is the youngest Western industrial nation in the world, in the OECD. We shouldn't have seen here 6,000 and more people dead because of this. We shouldn't have seen here three waves. We could have ended this after the first lockdown. We could have done this. And nobody will talk about it. You know why? Because the Israeli opposition, and this is to the credit of Netanyahu, this is what's going to win his, this election for him if he's going to win it. The Israeli opposition, instead of uh, saying, you know, what the left wing has said in the UK, what Labour has said in the UK, and in other places in the world, for instance, in the US, the opposition here took a reductionary, denialist position 
you know, also maintained by elites distrustful of Netanyahu. And they just went into a sort of, it's not such a big deal, you know, Netanyahu wants you panicked like he wants you panicked about Iran. So instead of positioning themselves as saying all the time, every dead person is a tragedy and is a failure of this government, which is what basically the Biden campaign did. They positioned themselves as maybe it's not such a big deal after all. Maybe Netanyahu is using this for his trial. You know, forget about Italy. And after they understood it's a big deal, it was way too late for them to reposition themselves in a place in which COVID-19 is actually something they care about. They don't. They have no position. The entire center left in Israel did not present a comprehensive approach to COVID-19 until today. Which is quite interesting because actually the person who has attacked him most vigorously on corona is from the right, Naftali Bennett, who has been attacking him since middle of the year. And his, that's when his polls were the best. But what I want to ask you is if the COVID situation and the economic crisis and everything we've been through has not changed the basic breakdown of the coalition building blocks, we're in the same situation we were in in March. What does it actually mean to be pro or anti Netanyahu these days? It's tribal. And it's you know that. It's well, I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, don't actually know everything, you know. Yeah. No, Mo- you do. Only most, <laughs> mostly. Yeah, most things. Uh, uh, politics today and tribalism are so connected. There's one very interesting thing about Netanyahu in comparison to other leaders. All his friends around the world, from Donald Trump downwards, have tended to deny science on this, have tended to be very blasé about the threats of COVID. Netanyahu is the opposite. Now, We've talked enough about COVID. What does it tell us about Netanyahu? And what is, in what way do you think he's different to these populist leaders? Okay, so I interviewed uh, Anne Applebaum uh, last week to my column in Yediot. And this is exactly what I, you know, asked her about because Netanyahu is a successful politician. And now comes the real paradox and the real question. What happens if we get these nationalists and they actually do a good job? Unlike Donald Trump. Unlike Donald Trump. But to your point, one of the countries that's doing best right now, which was just written up in the New York Times, is also led by an authoritarian leader, and that's Serbia. Another good ally of Netanyahu. The country that is really doing the best is, of course, China. And China is, you know, a dictatorship. happens to be a dictatorship. And, and, yeah. and what we're seeing here with Singapore and China and other countries, and also with, with Israel, is really a sort of question about the way that we... Can maintain democracies. What happens if these leaders actually do a good job? Then we're in a real dilemma. Which you can probably solve for us if that should come to pass. Davayal, thank you so much for being here and talking with us. Okay, Todaba. Those opening synthesized piano chords are so ubiquitous that the moment you hear them, you expect Benjamin Netanyahu to jump up onto the stage and make yet another victory speech. Over the years, Halikud Zenachon, the Likud is right, has become the party's unofficial anthem, though it's never been adopted as such officially. Ironically, Halikud Zenachon was originally the party's campaign jingle in 1992, when Likud lost the election to Yitzhak Rabin's Labour. So why did the losing jingle become Likud's unofficial anthem, still used to this day at every party rally 30 years since it was first composed? Well, for a start, Halikud Zanachon may not have won the election, but composer Henri Bater really did come up with a very catchy tune. Which is why he's a legendary jingle composer in Israel. True. 
The other reason is that unlike other election jingles, which are quickly forgotten after the election by most people, with the exception of political and musical geeks like Dalia and me, Halikud Zinachon was used again soon after the 1992 election when the candidates in Likud's first ever party-wide primaries used it at their own primary events. Those primaries were, of course, won by one Benjamin Netanyahu, and ever since, the anthem has been identified with Netanyahu's Likud. However, the version we just heard now is a new one. It's Halikud Wasah. The Likud is right in Arabic, and I first heard it last week watching a rally Netanyahu held in the Bedouin village of Tarabin. Now, we've spoken at length in previous episodes of Election Overdose on Netanyahu's Arab strategy, today as well, so I won't bore you with it again. But if that strategy yields Netanyahu and Likud a couple of seats next Tuesday, we may hear on election night Alikud Wasah played at the victory rally. <laughs> That's it for episode 12 of Election Overdose. We'll be having a special pre-election extra on Monday. And we'll be covering the last-minute polls, all sorts of polling tidbits. You'll be perfectly primed for the best and the worst of the day after. Listen to us on Haaretz.com or on your favorite podcast provider. I'm Dahlia Shenlin. I've been here with my co-host, Anshul Pfeffer, and our special guest, Nadavayal. Many thanks also to our producer, Yonatan Manovich. And see you back here at Haaretz on Monday. <laughs>